There's a list. There's a I, list it's a, again. I, it's a very modest list. I thought we weren't going to talk about the weather anymore. Yeah, I know. We're not. We're talking about when. Yeah. Because everybody knows when you can't talk about the the weather, you you, you can still talk well, about the wind because yeah. it blows. Yeah, but everybody knows also that wind is part of weather. So this is we're true. talking we're talking about weather when we talk about wind. Well, uh, then let's wind this down, uh, wind this down. Whip inflation now. Yeah. Ooh wee baby. So, anyways. So. Well, I opened a beer. I don't know about you guys. It's a modest little list, but. Yeah, it'll what be are you a... drinking, Jack? Uh, Lining Kugels. All right. Sunset wheat. Sunset wheat. Seriously, you're already you're already you've already opened a beer. No, I haven't opened it yet. It's sitting. Here. I have. I have. Uh, I haven't had a sip yet, but it's open. Yeah. Yeah. It's sitting here. It's about to be opened any second now. Uh, I just need to write down the time. I had to remember to bring an opener for this stuff because it ain't lineys this time. It's uh, it's what? Let's see. It is uh, New Belgian Brewing Company from Fort Collins called Dig. It's a pale ale. Dig. D-I-G. D-I-G, right. And like Fort Collins, Colorado. Yeah. Real hoppy. Yeah. Real hoppy. Got a nice aftertaste. uh, High alcohol content, which is perfect because I've got to walk all the way 40 feet back to the house when I'm done. Yeah, you need a designated leader um, (laughs) or something like that. Anyways, we're going to start out today with a listener question. We have a, uh, a question from a listener. This is an inside joke. Nobody will get it. From, uh, from listener Alan Smithy of uh, someplace, let's say Los Angeles. Uh, he asks, is it possible to hand prop any airplane? And if not, what's the deciding factor? Oh, I misread that last week because I, I read that last week. Is, is it safe to hand prop? Is it ever safe to hand prop an airplane? Uh, yeah. No. All right. My answer to that was yes, but. This is clearly a different question. Yeah, no, no, no. So, I mean, so can you hand prop any airplane? Jeb, assuming one were strong enough and, you know, whatever, <laughs> could you could you hand prop the Debbie? If you were, like, really in a jam. No, no, no. you got to read the question again. What was the question? Okay. Is it possible to hand prop any plane? Yeah. No. There are a lot of aircraft out, airplanes out there that do not have propellers. Okay. Okay. Oh. 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 Okay. We're going that way, huh? All right. Throw, throw a rope. Throw a rope around the the, the main shaft behind the, uh, the 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 fan disc and pull on it. Yeah. See, I thought the question implied propeller, and my ex- ex- well, my ex- well, ex- exemption or my exception was going to be turboprops, um, which R- you probably R- T- RTFM. Really? There so you go. Does the does the owner's manual really talk about hand propping? Yeah, probably. Well, if it does, it'll say don't. Yeah, okay. But, but, but um, you really put, have to be propping that puppy fast on a turbine. Putting, putting aside the yeah, put, putting putting aside the the semantics of the question for from Mr. Alan Smithy of L.A. Um, I I let's assume a a piston powered uh, um, uh, single or whatever. Yeah. With a propeller, um, I I think. I think not is the is a quick answer also. Yeah, well, I, and I presume that the question is not. I mean, let me let me let me phrase the question a little differently. All right, I'm going to presume that it's really not possible to hand prop the debonair. All right, I also know from observation that it's possible to hand prop a Piper Cub. Someplace in between is the is the dividing line between where it's it's kind of reasonable to hand prop and not. All right, well, and 
I just I just did an article on this for safety. Actually, Amy wrote it, mm-hmm. and she wrote in that article um, that if you've got a, a magneto system, uh, there's a couple of jumping off points here. If you've got a magneto system. Um, then to have a prayer of being successful at hand propping the airplane, it needs to have an impulse coupling advance mechanism. To, on, on, on one, on, 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 one, one of the on, on one, on one of the mag that retards the uh, the ignition timing, so that the airplane becomes easier to start. Um, so I think that's one thing that you have to have. The other side of this this. Uh, um, trying to get a magneto started when the engine's not turning uh, uh, complication there's the 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 vibrator starting vibrators that i don't even know how they work but they're battery powered okay and if you that's how the spark is retarded on certain magnetos so if you have a dead battery which is the reason you need to hand prop the airplane you cannot energize that vibrator, and you cannot it, it retard the spark mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to get the engine started at a very, very low RPM. So that's your other jumping-off point. I think the third jumping-off point is, uh, it has to do with multi-cylinder engines. A four-cylinder engine is eminently easier to hand-prop than a six or, God forbid, an eight or, or think about radials now also. Mm-hmm. Uh, a a, a nine-seven-cylinder radial, nine-cylinder radial, those would be very interesting and probably impossible for the average human to hand prop. And that, is that because of the cumulative compression? That plus um, just, the, just the way the, um, I think, just the way the, the props turn on them. It just turns so slowly. I don't know. I, it just strikes me as as a large radial would be almost impossible to hand prop. Mm-hmm. Some of the early radials were <clears throat> hand propped, uh, but they were five and seven cylinders. They were low right. compression. Uh, we're talking about engines that peaked out at the 110, 115 horsepower range. Uh, and they were all hand propped in those days. And the big advance was flywheel starters, where you cranked uh-huh. a handle and spun a flywheel and then pulled a clutch and engaged it, and that spun the motor uh, even before electricity came along, uh, starter motors and such. Uh, but Jeb's right, but even a four-cylinder like a 210-horse 200, Lycoming uh, has yeah, much higher compression ratio. Uh, from personal experience, I can tell you it can be done, but you really don't want to. Yeah. It is a it, it is a royal pain. Uh, yeah. the, the biggest engine I've seen um, hand propped was uh, it was either an O three twenty or an O three sixty Lycoming, uh, and it was a very delicate. I was in the left seat for it. It was a very delicate affair. Yeah, uh, but we got it done. Mm-hmm. Um. I was the starter motor, and it was a 210-horse injected uh-huh. IO360. Yeah. Uh, and it was not helped by the fact that it was 40 degrees outside. Yeah. Uh, because we couldn't get the sucker to turn through the oil with yeah. the ignition off hmm. until we put an hour of preheat on the damn thing. Right. And then it would, and then you could move the, because remember, when you're, Hand propping, or when the starter motor, for that matter, is turning the engine over on cold oil, uh, there's a lot of oil down in that sump, uh, down in the oil pan, and those weights, those fly weights on the crankshaft, have got to swim through that. 
to a mm. certain extent. Right. And that's really thick. It's like trying to swim in molasses. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, we, we could do a, we could do a whole podcast on preheating your engine. Yeah. Oh, now this yeah. this big engine. Did you get it started hand propped? We did. We did. Uh, it, it was. Uh, it was not fun. It was scary. Uh, we we tried turning the engine over just to get oil through the bearings without the preheat, and decided that as hard as it was just to turn it through cold, that hand propping it was out of the question until we got it preheated. So mm-hmm. we yeah yeah we no. pulled it back in the hangar. We did an hour of preheat on it. We had breakfast at the at the airport cafe. Came out. Uh, I don't know twelve eighteen times i was coming out of clothes working up a sweat trying cracking these puppy through and we finally did get it started and as the guy with the airplane i wasn't going with him as the guy with the airplane it was a pits uh was headed out uh the mechanic came out and said you know did anybody talk to him about the question of whether that airplane's even airworthy if the battery's dead yeah because if the battery's dead, there's a chance the alternator won't work because the alternator on that's not self-exciting. And if the alternator won't work, he's not going to have any power. Uh, the magnetos will obviously run the engine, but nothing else is going to get power. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, did I understand? And, and I said, I don't know. That was a question above my time rating. Did I, did I misunderstand earlier? Did you say that the two of you did this on the same airplane, that you, you worked together to hand prop this airplane, or did I misunderstand? Well, the pilot, the, the, the guy that owned the airplane and I, we were taking turns trying to pull it through to get oil. Okay, pumping. all right. Now, Jeb, so what? So that wasn't the airplane that you were referring to where you were sitting in Oh, the, no, 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 no. No, different airplane. And how did yours go? Mine went fine. Yeah? yeah now I, I, I had a pro handling the prop. Yeah. That was the key. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I, but it, it, it wasn't me handling the prop. Yeah. David, on your in your case, you said a minute ago, uh, you said it was difficult and scary. I, I can certainly understand that it's physically difficult. What was scary about it? What was scary about it was up to that point, the, the most powerful thing I'd ever hand-propped was a tailor craft with a wooden prop. And this was a much more powerful engine with a metal prop. And the thought of it catching before I cleared my fingers from the icy cold prop blades and winding up with digits too short to type with, that was kind of scary. Because we had a couple of pops there where I, my hands were out of the way, but not by as much as I liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then we took a break for David to peel off a couple of layers of clothes because I was starting to sweat like a guy in a summer marathon. And... Uh, we got it started, and I stepped aside, and he did the run-up, and he taxied out, and he blasted out of there. And the mechanic at the shop where the airplane had been hangered come out and says, uh, anybody ask him about whether that's really, you know, airworthy? I mean, if the battery's dead, uh, yada, yada, yada. Right. I was like, man, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm experienced in hand-propping weed hoppers, uh, <laughs> drifters, and tailor craft. So, right. Now, Jeb, have you ever actually done the, the propping part? Have you ever been on the propeller? I'd be happy to, you know, depending on the circumstances, I'd be happy to give it a shot. But I've never had the uh, opportunity or need. Yeah. 
it, it, I mean, like David describes, it strikes me as a as a dicey yeah. kind of thing in terms of getting your hands clear and and so forth. On the other hand, well, we, you know, it, we, it all depends. I mean, I wouldn't be doing it in the rain and the mud. It, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. <You know>. right. <laughs> um, um, but on the other on hand, the air, depends on the airplane. Depends on the environment. Depends on a lot of stuff. Yeah, because be, we. Yeah, we obviously know that people do this routinely and, you know, in in suitable airplanes. There was a guy um, had a 170 uh, when I was based at the Venice airport uh, three or four years ago. Uh, I had a 170 in the hangar road just across from me. And he was was an old pro at this, and he he had a uh, dead alternator, dead battery, whatever it was. And um, he said, no problem. And... Pulled the airplane out, positioned it like he wanted it, um, sat down, <clears throat> put one foot on the ground, reached forward, and and just kind of flipped the propeller, and it started right up at a very low idle. It was the sweetest sounding thing you'd ever seen, mm-hmm. and um, went out and, and, and flew around. Now, you, you touched on something else, though. Yeah. Uh, or, or maybe David did, about an airplane. Oh, the, the pits. The pits with a dead battery. Uh, was it legal to fly with a dead battery? That's a good question. Uh, and, the, and the answer, of course, is it depends. I would bet you, I would bet you, especially if that was an experimental pits, that it was legal to fly without with a dead battery. And there are other airplanes; it's it's very legal to fly with a dead battery. There are planes, of course, that don't have batteries. Um, so, um, but it, it depends on what the type certificate says, or, or what the standard equipment is, and what. It, you know your your limitations say about about starting or, or taking off with a dead battery. Mm-hmm. Well, my uh, um, good, that's but, the answer. That's the answer to whether or not it's legal. Yeah, David, go ahead. A buddy of mine here uh, in the Wichita area, he skydives. Uh, he's got a real sweet T craft. Uh, I he flies a T craft uh, two or three times a year to little uh, uh, events that I go to, and uh, no electrical system in it. Uh, it's got an 85-horse uh, uh, engine in it, and uh, he's got this down to a science, and uh, he's got a chalk in front of the right wheel and a chalk in front of the left wheel and lines that run up through the cockpit door, and it, it, he, he does it just like Jeb described. He's got his foot on against the tire. The door's unlatched. He's got it set. He knows exactly where to set the throttle, uh, crack the mixture. Uh, and he stands behind the prop and flips that puppy through a couple of times and reaches in, turns the ignition on, flips it through, and it fires up and goes chugga, 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 yeah. chugga. He climbs in. He takes the rope and pulls the chucks out. They're little small metal things, too, really kind of cute. Yeah. Uh, he pulls them in through the door, closes the door. Uh, you know, he's holding the brakes at that point. Uh Finishes his run up, waves, and off he goes. Yeah. Well, I told the story back during the winter of, of my uh, my uh, ski plane rides with uh, listener Laminar. Yeah, I and, think that's uh, probably what prompted the question. Yeah, and he and and he was talking about. Uh, I'm not talking about what. I mean, I was there, and I'm I'm sitting fat, dumb, and happy in the back seat of this cub, and uh, he's sitting out, you know, kind of leaning on the strut, uh, reaching forward to the to the prop, which I'd seen him do that any number of times because he brings that airplane to our our 
uh, brunches at, at Nashua, but now it's on skis on the ice, and and it doesn't occur to me until the engine actually fires up. All right, that there's no brakes, there's no chocks. All right, so so he starts the thing up, you know, and he reaches in and he's trying to give it just the right amount of power so it won't stall, but it also won't go taxiing across the lake too quickly, while he's trying to climb into the uh, into the airplane, which is not an easy thing to do under the best of circumstances. But you know. The, the folks who do these things in a plane that's suitable for it, they do it just fine. They do it all the time. And uh, Well, the same thing is true on, in a seaplane. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I would imagine, sure. Yeah. yeah. And so, you, you, in that case, you're standing on a pontoon trying to hand prop the puppy in most cases, mm-hmm. as opposed to standing on a, on a, on a dock. Right. And, and, and the solution to both of them, if you've got a problem, is to tie down the airplane. There you go. I, water or, uh, or snow or ice. Yeah. Yeah. And then you run a little line up to the door that lets you untie that rope, and it slips loose, and away you go. Yeah, there you go. That, and, and, you know, having somebody competent at the controls is always good, too. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, the, the most important which, which thing totally, about this is which to totally come away omit, with the same yeah. number of fingers you start with. Yeah, I'm sorry, Jeff. Go ahead. Having someone competent at the controls totally omits me. Yeah, well, yeah, I was, I was thinking actually the case where I was sitting in the back seat of the airplane. You know, it's like, yeah, you're out of luck, Laminar. Sorry, you better, you better figure this out because I'm no use to you at all. Anyways, uh, th- well, so thank you to uh, listener Alan Smithy. Swell prize to any listener who can tell to tell me what who Alan Smithy is was uh, wants to be. Um, but uh, but can we can we use the Google? Um, I, I can't imagine you're not going to. But while you're doing that, I will say, welcome, folks, to episode 288 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Man, and we don't feel a bit older than 280. We're going to be hearing a little bit of background noise throughout the day, but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's not really noise. good background noise. That's yeah, right. this, is, this is the best seat in the house. That's right. We got skywriters now. We got skywriters now. Does that say UCAP? It's got a runway in the front yard. (laughs) (laughs) And you're in sight, clear land. Check East National Ground. Good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Delta. We're recording this episode on uh, Wednesday, May 23rd, 2012, and joining me here on the virtual hangar, my two good friends. Uh, that's Dave Higdon's voice you heard just there. He's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? What's going on? Uh, just a uh, lovely week. Nice skies, breezy, warm. And yeah, you were telling us earlier. Looking forward to a long weekend. You were telling us earlier it's a little breezy out there, huh? Oh, great kite flying weather. Yeah. Great kite flying weather. <laughs> well, and I- great soaring weather if you happen to be headed downwind. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, I, I like the comment you made earlier uh, about uh, looking at airplanes overhead and how you can see them. Fl- you can actually see them flying in a crab angle. What was it you said? Oh, yeah, man. Uh, yeah, you could see them flying at such a crab angle that you know that if, if, if ATC calls them up and gives them traffic off the, you know, off the cardinal points, oh, such and such, uh, you've got traffic at your 3 o'clock. The guy in the airplane is going to have to sit here and translate that three o'clock from about forty degrees off his actual the, the direction the nose is actually yeah, pointed. Sort of like a time zone adjustment, right? Yeah, so. uh, kind of something like that. Yeah, yeah, right. And also here in the virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? Doing all right. Um, getting a lot of stuff done this week. Yeah. Um, yep. Out running errands and <clears throat> that kind of stuff. The pool water is warm. The sun is hot. Mm-hmm. Um, any progress on the project that must not be named? 
I'm sorry. <laughs> the project we, we, that can, shall we not, can talk about that, but I, the project that shall not be named. I'm saving. I'm saving this. Okay. <clears throat> All right. One of your what, marriage. One of your Facebook uh, friends yeah, guessed yeah. correctly, and uh, I'll leave it at that. One of these days. Oh, yeah. No, I, I. Lynn knows what's going on. I've talked to Lynn, you know, face to face. One of these days, we'll, 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 we'll twist your arm and get you to tell the whole story. But for oh the, yeah. For the time being, I'm having. A, I'm having a good time teasing both you and our listeners. I don't want to serialize this thing, okay? (laughs) Well, you know, and it would have been... Let's do this once. It would have been a career. (laughs) Get over with. It would have been a career at this point, yeah. (laughs) It's been quite a story. And the other thing is that we know your blood pressure goes up when you start talking about this, so... Yeah, you know, we might, you know, be edging ever more closer to the line from a family podcast (laughs) to one unsuitable, therefore. Right. Anything else going on? Um, coming up on Memorial Day. Um, maybe uh, some flying. We'll see. Yeah. Big race on Sunday. Big race. Oh, yeah, that's right. They do have a, a thing like that. Oh, that's right. That's, that's sort of your neighborhood, David, right? It's- well, that's, I, I was listening to David Letterman, uh, or watching David Letterman uh, this past weekend when they were running Indianapolis time trials on TV, uh-huh. talking about growing up in Indiana. He grew up north in Indianapolis. I grew up on the southern end of the state down near the Ohio. But his description of Memorial Day growing up could have been plucked right out of my backyard. Dad's got the grill out. Mom's filling the little swimming pool for the kids. And every radio within five or six blocks is tuned in to the greatest spectacle in racing, the Indianapolis 500. You know, it's funny you say that because we did the same thing. I was born and raised in the Midwest also. And probably in miles, as, about as close as you to Indianapolis. Yeah, probably were, yeah. Um, and... Um, yeah, that's that's what you did on Memorial Day. You listened to the race, mm-hmm. yeah. and now you know. And well, and the funny thing was, we'd listen to the race on Memorial Day, and then ABC's Wide World of Sports would probably Excer- the second Excer- weekend after would run yeah. the race. Yeah, you know they'd have the film <laughs> of they, it, but they'd condense it down to like an hour and a half or something. Yeah, they'd condense it down to two hours, and that would include you know all the run up and all that stuff. Uh, never missing the high points, but it was all waiting on the film to get processed and edited. And now we see the puppy live. Right, right. Yeah, and since right. Annie and I are committed to be out of the house all day on Sunday, uh, just about 30 minutes ago, I set the DVR up to uh, record Sunday's race. Uh, and then when we get back from our Sunday obligations, uh, you know, we'll pop open some brown bottles and sit down and watch the greatest spectacle in racing. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll try really hard not to know who won already. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good idea. I might I might do that myself. Now, for a segue too good to pass up, um, and uh, this is not on the list. Um, I was thinking we might hold it off for another week, but uh, but like I said, a segue too good to miss. There was news this past week about the Reno Air Races. Um, there that they've yeah. sort of kind of made it official. They've kind of crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, apparently, and uh, such that they will be able to hold the races this year. Well, the big T and the big I. We're getting the hundred million in liability insurance right. coverage that they, right. that, that right. Uh, was going to be required for uh, Stead to, to host that race again, uh, 
and they're taking to heart uh, some of the advice from a, a Blue Ribbon Commission, which includes a couple of people that I'm, I'm, I'm friends with, uh, real experts in safety and a couple of experts in racing. And uh, the, the only major change that will be seen is a, a change in the course for the Unlimited and the Jets. Right. Now, I saw that headline, but I didn't see the details. Did you read that story? Do you know what the nature of the change is? Well, I followed up with uh, the folks at RARA, the Reno Air Racing Association. Yeah, uh, uh, and what they say? Well, basically what they're going to do is move uh, north a little bit the, uh, the, the, the crowd line passage for the Unlimiteds and the Jets. Right now it goes right down the center of the east-west runway. Uh, and that's that's you know that's almost close enough to to, to have the uh, sound of those big piston engines rattle your chest. Yeah, yeah. So they're moving that north. I'm not real clear how far, but I can't imagine they're going to move it too far because otherwise you really start to lose spectator involvement. But they're also going to change the uh, uh, turns a little bit, which means they're going to widen the course out in spots so that the turn into that final pass along the straightaway. Coming mm-hmm. out of what they call the Valley of Speed mm-hmm. will not be such a tight, high bank angle, high G turn. Ah, okay. Uh, they're going to try to round the corners out a little bit more, uh, and and that that course, the the lap around that course, if I remember right, it's a little over eight miles. Something like that. It's yeah. Yeah, that's that's a long lap, but yet they do it in under two minutes. Right. Right. So uh, you know they're cooking through there. Uh, well, here's here's a question, and I don't know where, but it was just a kind of a, a basic critique of the concept of having the spectators for this event outside the right. uh, the race course. Instead, the, the the spectators should be brought inside yeah. the race course, so that it, you know when they're outside, at some point there is a point on the racetrack at which if something goes wrong, the spectators will be endangered, and we just saw. You know what can happen um, yeah, to reduce it, your risk. Put the put the spectators inside, so at, at no point is the airplane pointed at the spectators. And that would be a really great idea and really complicated to do. It's well, still, I, I don't, because I don't they know. Can't really, yeah, yeah, they can't really run the course behind where the spectators are now, because uh, that would put them over populated areas and uh, industrial buildings and. And, and and create far more potential harm right. in the event something went wrong. It would mean moving all those spectators north inside the course, which would be phenomenal yeah. uh, well, for the spectators. Take, then, then take the spectators to the course. That's Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Move the I, spectators I don't, you know, and, on and, the and inside. There may well be a, gr- a very good logistical reason. I don't know. but And there may be, may be some other good reasons not to put the spectators inside the race course. Well, I don't know. From a safety reason, putting them inside makes a lot of sense. Um, there are, are just, a, as David alludes to, there's a whole whole uh, a bushel load of, of practical there's, logistical there's, reasons. You'd have to rebuild all the infrastructure yeah, sure, of the stands sure. and the, you know, but the... Um, if, if they widen the course out at one point and make the turn to that final straightaway a little farther to the west, uh-huh. then the airplanes coming down that valley of speed will have made the turn well before they start to come back right. past the crowd. And at a point on the airport where if something happens in that corner, 
they won't even be anywhere near the crowd line yet. Right. You know, but one of the one of the biggest problems with putting the spectators inside the circle, and that would be that most of the race course would then be behind the backs of the spectators. You wouldn't you wouldn't get a chance to see most of the race. We have a solution for that too. What's that? Swivel chairs. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. We, uh, we were fantasizing, um, you know, after we finished recording last week, the we, three of us were fantasizing a little bit about the possibility of going to Reno this year. And uh, I think we were all unanimous that we liked the idea, but there are lots of practical reasons, uh, that, so we'd have to work out. But we're, 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 we're toying with the idea of trying to take UCAP to the Reno Air Races this year. Uh, more on that as we, as, we, as we come to a consensus. As we learn more, as we figure some things out. I yeah. just wish I could go back next month for the uh, for the training thing. seminar. Well, yeah. I'll tell you that training thing would be really, really interesting this year, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's going to be interesting because I expect that they're going to have created and started to implement the course changes. Mm-hmm. They're going to be in effect for the race by the time the uh, the the students and the and the repeat uh, racers come back for the PRS, because that's p- part of the point of the PRS. It gives the veterans a chance to practice on the course as it will be, and the newbies get to you know practice and qualify on the course as a newbie. It it you know kind of reduce the value of that if they were training on the old course but going to race on the new one. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyways. and that ain't a cheap place to race, baby. When you're and the unlimiteds and the jets. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Anyways, more on that later on. I'm not sure which of you two put this story on the list. I've, I had been thinking it was David, but there's no name on it. This is a story from uh, Nine News.com, Colorado's news leader, and the headline is "Mystery Object Nearly Causes Midair Collision." So, I haven't. Yeah, you know, uh, which one of you put this on the on the, on the I, list? I, I did. You did. did. All right. So, what's the yeah. story? It was all over the inner tubes last year. I know it was, but tell us what the story was. Um, okay, so a citation is flying along IFR somewhere um, uh, near Denver. And um, gets on the frequency and reports something that he f- described as a um, remotely piloted vehicle. What's his exact words? A remote controlled aircraft. Something just by- went by the other way. Uh, it was like a large remote controlled aircraft. And this is um, liveatc.net picked this up. Um, and um, the FAA supposedly is investigating. Former uh, NTSB uh, accident investigator, Greg Fife, I believe is the pronunciation of his last name, is apparently a consultant for this, um, this television station. Um, said it was either a military or law enforcement drone, a remote-controlled aircraft, or a large bird. Well, okay, that pretty much narrows it down. Um, I don't know. I've seen these in some of these things in flight. It's pretty pretty unmistakable that um, uh, it's a remote piloted vehicle. Well, they're leaving out and, the other possibility. And, and this is a this is a Citation One CJ One pilot. So he's got some training and some experience. He was flying at 8,000 feet um, somewhere near Denver when he, when he encountered this aircraft. Yeah. Now, we're, we're, you're leaving out the fourth possibility, of course. It could be a flying saucer. I mean, this is, this is fly, flying saucer part of the country. 
Exactly. Okay. You know, you're out there in the uh, the, the the Rocky Mountains and the and the desert of of you know. Oh, never mind. I'm joking. So here we go. Uh, we we've we've now lost our yeah. cherry. Well, no, we haven't lost our cherry because they made no contact. All right, but uh, getting yeah, closer they and closer. They didn't, they didn't swap paint. Yeah. Uh, but here's here's my problem with this story. And looking, yeah, you know, this this was a, a certainly a local story. FAA headquarters, I think, had to respond to it. There was something they said. Um, then it just kind of evaporated. No yeah, one picked. That, no, that, that, no one. No of, one. Yeah, this local story, and that's kind of weird. That's the way flying saucer stories always work. Well, I'm not sure whether to attribute this to we don't want to talk about it, or whether to attribute it to an, a, an attention span in the media that's gotten so short. Well, I, that I think. Well, here, here are two possibilities. One, um, they don't know enough about the topic to really write anything else. Uh, and certainly we've seen that happen before. Or certainly we've seen where in instances where it should have happened right. uh, when it comes to aviation. But perhaps um, television stations in and of themselves are not inclined to raise a big stink about drones uh, violating the airspace when they themselves wouldn't mind using some drones on occasion to get some video um, when helicopters are so expensive. Yeah, that's not a bad perspective, dude. That's so not may- a bad maybe maybe they didn't maybe they didn't play it up for for a reason. Maybe it was maybe their they, drone. May, maybe it was their drone, but maybe the media just doesn't want to play this stuff up. Mm-hmm. Well. I'm I'm still of the mind that until they can categorically and positively demonstrate see and avoid autonomous, that yeah. they got no business in the airspace above 400 feet. Right. Now this next story is Dave's got Dave's name on it. Um, is this related in any way, David? Uh, I believe it is. Yeah. What's the headline here? Fox News, that bastion of <clears throat> now now of, that bastion of. of Fantasy and, and, and mythology. Uh, are you saying they, they? Are you saying they sometimes stretch the truth? I've not. I've not seen it yet. Uh, they uh, they started a big controversy advocating the idea that somebody shooting down a drone would be a national hero uh, for protecting privacy rights or something. Whatever. Uh, they got everything lit up. Uh, Oh, the Association of Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Systems International, they responded. Uh, it started out with one of the uh, uh, syndicated columnists that appears on Fox, uh, Charles Krauthammer, advocating for banning all unmanned aircraft from the national airspace system. I don't want regulations. I don't want restrictions. I want a ban on this. Drones are an instrument of war. Yes and no. But yeah I found myself strangely aligned with the idea that i I, I think that we're headed to a problem uh inevitably but then Andrew Napolitano, a judicial analyst for Fox News, echoed uh, the columnist sentiments the next day on Fox News by saying quote the first American patriot that shoots down one of these drones that comes too close to his children in his backyard will be an American hero uh okay. Well, the first time that this uh, drone happens to be delivering pizza to the neighbors next door and it gets shot down and hurts somebody. I'm not sure heroic is exactly going to be the title the, the associated with it, but uh, Taco it is Cop- lighting up. Sure. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyways, well, taco copter. Taco copter. Yeah. Right. It has to be as good. Yeah. Taco copter. It has to be as at least as good at seeing a void as the humans, which is only so so, and actually should be better given the amount of technology that they are able to pack into some of these for the purpose of data gathering. That some of that data should be whether there's any traffic in the area that needs to be avoided. Uh, as far as the size of the drone, I'm sorry, but I, I I don't really consider that relevant because even a small drone that gets placed in the right part of an airplane could cause something catastrophic. Oh yeah, I mean look at these birds. I mean a bird can do a lot of damage, even a small bird. Yeah. A bird can do a lot of damage in a metal drone getting sucked up in the inlet of a PT-6A uh, could effectively shut that puppy down. Yeah. And then we all know how well turbine, turboprop airplanes perform as gliders. Right, right. Not. So, anyways, yeah, we've talked about this before, more about it when we learn more. But, uh, anyways, hey, last, I think it was last episode, recently we talked about a cool um, low-cost airplane called the Affordaplane. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we really should be getting some money, all right, because we promote we prompted at least one purchase of, well, the $7 plans for the what's affordable. I was going to say, what's the commission going to be on a $7? On $7, all right. Uh, listener Sonic781 uh, in the forums tells us how, uh, after hearing about us talk about it on, uh, on the podcast, uh, he decided to invest the $7 and uh, ordered the uh, online downloadable plans, and he gives them some high marks. Uh, he, he, he confirms it, 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 even after looking at the plans, it continues to be an interesting airplane. Uh, they were surprisingly, he writes, so they were surprisingly well done and seemingly complete, uh, given they cost a mere $7. There's a lot of how-to detail, ranging from aircraft hardware to finishing parts and numerous photos. Uh, the, these are plans only, along with an assembly manual. There's no kit, per se. So the cost will be significantly impacted, he writes, uh, by what skills you bring regarding parts sourcing. And so he gives it. He relates an example that's in the uh, in the docs. Uh, he talks about the flight training issue we talked about. He says a note on flight training from the manual. The, he's quoting the manual. You will at least need to get checked out in a two-seat ultralight tail dragger, which is best, or are signed off for solo in a certified aircraft like a Champ or similar. David, you sighed. Are there still two-seat ultralights available for training purposes? Technically, no. Technically, no. That window closed as part of the uh, uh, advent of the light sport aircraft. Right. And when you say technically no, do you actually mean legally no? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But <laughs> there are still those airplanes out there that have been converted to ELSA status, so they can no longer be labeled as two-place ultralights flying on a waiver. Oh, okay. And they would be good candidates for that. Right. You still get I, I training. Bring that I bring that distinction up because it's going to be uh, an issue if you try looking for this uh, through, you know, not normal sources. You're going to say, gee, are there any two-place ultralights? No, there aren't, but there's some two-place ELSAs that are like ultralights. Right. It's, 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 it's this, you know, hair-splitting stuff that we sometimes have to do when dealing with the FAA regulations. Right. Not that that ever happens no, very no, often. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's good advice. Yeah. Uh, you know, an Aronka Champ, 
uh, or a uh, MX2 Quicksilver, which is not a tail dragger, but uh, the tail dragger part of this, when you're talking about such low horsepower, low weight, low torque, uh, in the years that I flew a lot of ultralights, tricycle gear, and tailwheel, uh, the tailwheel habits of all of them were really very benign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the main thing was getting wired into flying an airplane of that weight and such light wing loading, as opposed to the difference between nose wheel and tail wheel. Uh, because uh, when the wing loading is that light, when the airplane's that light, uh, it reacts to what we would call turbulence much differently than something like a Cessna 150 or a 140 or uh, a, a, a Piper. Uh, uh, oh, what was their two-place trainer? Uh, Gemini. The, the Tomahawk. Tomahawk, sorry. right. Yeah, right. Tom, yeah. Tomahawk. yeah. yeah. Th- th- those airplanes have no, no relationship, uh, no relative relation in behavior to what some of these uh, even two-place Part 103 wavered airplanes had because you know, at the max you were talking about airplanes with a gross weight of six or 650 pounds as opposed to an airplane that empty weighed more than that. Right. So, so, uh, uh, but if you, get, if you get some time in a, in, a, in a champ or a cub or something like that, you, you'd be right on the money. Uh, if it's a, a similarly light airplane with uh, a nose wheel instead of a tail wheel, you, you, you shouldn't be that far off the beam and learning to handle it because right. there's just not enough torque there to cause you to go rapidly off course. Right. Not like, say, uh, oh, let's say an F4U Corsair. Yeah, okay. <laughs> where if you don't crack in a whole bunch of rudder trim before you advance the throttle, you'll run out of rudder pedal before you run out of rolling over and crashing upside down. Right. Listener Sonic781 goes on to talk about the pricing. He says, I can find no mention of any specific cost, i.e. $3,000. But, he writes, that is probably reasonable. One might be able to do much better, especially if you have some leftover 6061-T6 aluminum left over from another project like my Sonics, he writes. I have two words for this. Yeah. The yard store. Sorry, that's three words. The yard store in Wichita. Okay. I, I took a look at the, the materials list of this online yeah. uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, I can go over here about a mile and a half from my house and buy every stinking bit of it except some of the rivets. That's not that. The yard uh, store. Is that that uh, surplus materials place that we visit? Yeah, it's the place. That's David. a cool store. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's a good a place. place. When we were doing some mod work to Air Comanche years ago, uh, uh, we were doing some uh, mod work on the gear wells so that we could move the disc brakes and the calipers to the inside of the wheels so that when they retracted, the, the, that hardware wasn't hanging out in the airflow. Well, that required notching a rib and then reinforcing it with aluminum angle 6061T6. And my buddy, the leprechaun, uh, the, uh, the mechanic, he said, I need this much of it. Go down to the yard store and tell them that's what you want and buy it and bring it back. And the guy says, so how much do you want? Is that all? Oh, that's really small. I may have to. I, I'm not sure. Oh, look, 
I got a scrap piece that we cut off some other stuff that's as long as you need. Will that do? I'll give it to you for half price. I went away with a $5 investment. Yeah, whoa, yeah. Joe, were you trying to jump in there? No. Okay. Um, Sonics781 uh, continues talking about uh, engines because we were a little unclear on what the engine options were. Um, the uh, plan slash manuals uh, uh, apparently talk about that. He says uh, engines mentioned in the manual include, and he's quoting now, you can choose from a Rotax 377, 447, uh, uh, one half VW, and then he, it says watch the weight and horsepower on these. A 2SI 35 horsepower or a Kawasaki 440. He says the plans show an engine mount for a Rotax 447. So uh, the I, my, I'll tell you what. Yeah. At the at the weight of that airplane and the wing loading of that airplane, if you could find the sing, the old single cylinder Rotax 277, that would be the hot setup. Mm-hmm. Really light, really reliable, straightforward little engine. Uh, they were used on the Drifter single-seater for years. It's a 27-horsepower engine. Yeah. And yeah. an airplane flew great on that and had a whopping fuel burn of about 0.7 gallons an hour. So with a 5-gallon max on an ultralight airplane under Part 103, wow, 50 miles an hour, 0.7. Uh, gee, many, you could get about five hours out of that with reserves and go Every bit of two hundred and fifty miles. Oh, you said you said point seven. I did say point seven oh, gallons an hour. Okay, all right. I was thinking seven gallons an hour. That's a lot. But point seven. Point that's seven. Point seven. seven gallons an hour. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Sonic seven eight one concludes by saying, in any case, the Affordaplane manual slash plans were certainly worth the price of seven dollars, even f- just for the good reading and the reminder of the history of Part one hundred three aircraft. So, uh, thank you to uh, Sonic seven eight one for uh, yeah. for. Uh, no going the extra mile here and uh, because we weren't gonna um <laughs> and uh, giving us some real no, information he, here. he knows what to, he knows what to, to look for what to ask and you know, that's a good response yeah. now good one aspect of this airplane has been on my mind ever since we talked about it you'll recall that the the fuselage of this airplane the fuselage between the imp, between the tail and the the cockpit is actually a a let's call it a two-dimensional piece of of framing all right, it's, it's a truss, right? But it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, you I, when I first looked at the picture, I pictured that as being sort of a triangular truss, and it's not. It's not. It's, it's, it's not. It's no. it's just a single. You know, it's got height and you know height and length, but basically no width, just the width of the tubing. Um, my question is: Is that really structurally sufficient? You know, for I had this image of you're flying along and and you you, you give a good stomp on one of the rudder pedals and and the the whole tail structure kind of bends a little bit as the uh, as the rudder input twists you sideways or turn you know yaws you sideways. Is that not a concern? Is the, is the is the square tubing strong enough to deal with that kind of thing? Square tubing is pretty strong. Yeah. But think about the loads that you're going to have or not going to have on a machine that's only going to go about 50. Mm-hmm. Well, that's sort of Maybe what I was wondering. That you, so that you think that is the case. It just the loads are all so low anyways that... Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. Continues to be a cool airplane. Yeah. And if you're not interested in building, I just found on Barnstormers... A weed hopper with a Rotax 277 that's ready to fly for 2700. There you go. Where is it? 
uh, Tennessee. Hmm. Livingston, Tennessee. Yeah. So, uh, David, I, I saw this story, and then you ended up putting it on the list. Um, some sort of report out of the Wichita business, I don't know, Chamber of Commerce or something, um, or airports group or something like that, that uh, GA activity is on the rise in Wichita. What's the story here? Well, uh, airports that get public funding usually pay close attention to traffic counts uh, because they use traffic counts when they apply for grants and such to help justify the application. And the uh, the report out of the Wichita Airport Authority was that uh, general aviation traffic, as opposed to commercial airline traffic, uh, had uh, shown a, a, a noticeable uptick at uh, at both Wichita Midcontinent and Wichita's Jabara Airport, which is a GA only airport over on the northeast side of town. Uh, nice six thousand foot runway, ILS, and all that stuff. Uh, and the numbers, they've got a chart that's with the link that shows how the uh, traffic dropped off uh, in the wake of the uh, Grand Recession and how it started to kick back up again, uh, broken down by year and then by the first quarter of this year. Uh, and, it's, and it's up noticeably. Uh, and I'll be right up front and say that that's got to be predominantly private operations because as the gamma reports have shown uh, uh, the first quarter gamma reports deliveries are down of new airplanes so this can't in, in my mind be attributed to higher production flight test traffic by Cessna and Learjet over at Midcontinent and there is no such production based over at Chabara uh, the private operators seem to be getting back into the air more and flying more for whatever reasons uh, and it's showing up in the stats here. I'm also seeing the same kind of feedback from companies that track uh, private jet operations and charter uh, business, that there's been some small increases in the last, not just this quarter, first quarter of this year, but the last quarter and the third quarter of last year, where those uh, stats are, 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 are trending upward. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it, it is an election year. That's part of it, uh, but I don't think that's enough of it. I no, honestly don't. I honestly don't think that's enough of it. I think it's actually people doing more business and using the airplanes more for business. Mm -hmm. I don't, on the other hand, think that it's more, a lot more flying by people like Jack, Jeb, and Dave. Yeah. David, you said that the Gamma report reported that deliveries were down. Is that what you is that what it says? Deliveries are down, or or new orders are down? Deliveries. See, the orders aren't reported. Okay. And now here's another question I have, um, and maybe there's no public information about this, but from your experience, so um, do do these manufacturers ever actually empty out their order book? I mean, did they deliver every airplane they had on order during, no, at any point? No. no. So no, no. so 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 they they've always got a couple airplanes on order that they're trying to get finished so they can get right, them. Right. They out call the door. it backlog. So if deliveries are down over a certain period, it's not necessarily the result of 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 the economy and of the buying part of the economy it's it's based on how quickly they're able to build them you see my logic here am i it, yeah no it's wrong it's not how it works <laughs> no it's okay that's why i asked no, the question no, it, it, no it's a good question it's just backward uh production rates are are set according to the size of the backlog 
Okay. Uh, because the backlog represents orders with deposits and signed contracts, and usually delivery commitment dates. So if you got so many airplanes committed for, say, 2013, in 2011 and 12, you're going to set your production rates up so that you're able to meet those delivery commitments in 2013. If your backlog shrinks and your delivery commitments for 2013 are declining, your production rates are probably going to go down because none of these outfits like to build what the industry calls white tails. Right. White tails being unsold or uncommitted airplanes. Oh, right. Yeah, I can. That represents that. that represents inventory that hadn't been paid for. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, All right. Uh, let's see now. Uh, so last week, another thing we talked about last week. Well, I think it was last week, uh, last episode. Was, we talked about a lot of stuff last week. I know. Was this uh, uh, NTSB study or research uh, somehow related with EAA having to do with why uh, experimental aircraft have a worse safety record? All right. And now we see a story. Is this story related to that? Um, kit planes three times more likely to kill yes. than factory craft. It is yes, related. I posted... I put refresh your uh, at the bottom. I posted the uh, yeah. I see know, that. Yep. NTSB press release. Jeb, tell us what's going on here. What's what's how's well, this connected? I'm not I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Um, the NTSB uh, is coming to the end of their study. They released um, a series of recommendations. They released a rather rather lengthy press release. Um, detailing um, some of the problems that they've identified uh, among the uh, EAB community um, with the with the assistance of EAA. EAA has been a full part of this. Basically, they identified um, either the first flight of the aircraft, often by its builder, or the f- sooner or the first flight, uh, if not soon thereafter, of a used EAB aircraft um, flown by its new owner. These situations are the, uh, apparently according to the, what I read on the NTSB uh, press release, these two situations are the greatest cause of accidents and especially fatal accidents involving EAB aircraft. And the NTSB would like to take a look at what we can do to try to fix that. And I think it's a reasonable thing. Yeah, it seems like it. The part of it that kind of gets me, just sort of catches my attention, is that it's they're comparing apples and oranges. They're saying that experimental sure. amateur built is less safe than other parts of aviation. But then they kind of say, oh, but we're discovering that the reason it's less safe is because they've got one particular aspect of of, of operation that basically doesn't exist in the other fields, um, which is to say... The, the, that's, that's a good observation, Jack. You know? I mean, and uh, so, if you take delivery of a new Cessna, a uh, new Piper, uh, Maul, Mooney, well, not Mooney, it, you, you get the picture. You're not yeah. a test pilot. That airplane's been checked. It's been through a production flight right. test sequence. It's been signed right. off and granted it blessed and shoved out the door as having proven itself to meet a standard. Uh, it's also been built to a standard, particularly if it's a factory that's got a production certificate. Uh, 
none of that applies to experimental amateur right, film. Right, right. And, and don't get me wrong, uh, you know, if... if if experimental amateur built first flights are are that dangerous or that that you know risky, then we need to figure out what, you know what we can do to make them safer. But there is not a, a kit builder out there that doesn't give uh, at least strong lip service to the concept of having someone other than the builder, someone experienced in the type design, do the initial flight in right. the airplane. Right. Some anybody but the builder. Right. Uh, basically. But I have a right. little bit of a problem right. with the fact that they're putting out these alarmist headlines suggesting that, you know, that there's a there's an apples and apples comparison here between the two, you know, between a, well, a I mean, a, what do you think, Jeb? I don't know. I don't know about the factual three times more likely to kill than factory aircraft. I don't know if that's yeah. factual or not. A. B, that's fairly inflammatory. Yeah. Uh C um, maybe <laughs> I guess is the is the real answer. Um, you can certainly get into bush operations. You can get into law enforcement operations. You can get into uh, other uh, operations of aircraft that involve greater risk than droning along at, at seven thousand feet above the ground over a long distance. There are there are. Variations. There are different risks here imposed by each of these operations. Um, experimental amateur built craft, by their by their nature, um, are going to have uh, some higher risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and some of these some of the accidents that went into this calculation are wholly unrelated to the idea of. The aircraft being amateur built, uh, wholly unrelated to the first flight syndrome. Uh, for example, they, they cited the uh, they cited an, an accident I'm extremely familiar with because I had to do a lot of writing about it at the time. Was uh, John Denver's accident in the uh, Long Easy that he bought? Uh, that airplane had been flying for years uh, at the hands of the original builder. Right. Uh, Mr. Denver was not real familiar with the airplane, and there were some access issues that came into play because of a difference in size between him and the builder and the way the original builder set up things. See, that's where experimental amateur built creates variables that don't generally exist in factory-built airplanes. For example, RANS, VANS, uh, Lancer, they all strongly encourage their builders to follow the plans, not deviate, to do things as, they, as they've laid out because when they did their prototyping work, that's what worked. But there's nothing in the FARs that prevents you from making whatever changes you want to to these kits. Right. So if a guy says, well, you know, I don't really want to put the fuel control valve there. I'd rather put it over here because it's going to be easier to build and I can reach it, it's not going to take into account necessarily that another pilot of a different stature may find that extremely inconvenient and maybe even inaccessible. So, you know, there's, 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 there's some alarmist tendencies of the story, but there's also some truth to it that the, the variations in what guys do with, when they build airplanes it can come into play. But the big thing is this... It, I, I can I, I liken it a little bit to the, the the homesick angel express syndrome, where 
you know, the pilot's been gone. He wants to get home that day. He's going to push, regardless of all common sense, to get home and winds up hurting himself. And the builder, who's got pride of authorship, pride of craftsmanship, and by God, he built the airplane. He wants to be the guy to make the first flight. Okay, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. If that builder goes to the trouble and spends the money to get some dual time in the same type, yeah, maybe. But if they rolls over on the, well, I've got a tailwheel rating, and it's a tailwheel, and it's a single-engine land airplane, a horsepower category that I'm qualified for. Uh, so going from my Cherokee to this tailwheel, higher-powered, lighter-weight airplane is perfectly legal, but not necessarily perfectly smart. And that's yeah. how some of these things happen. Yeah. You know, speaking <clears> of the <throat> John Denver thing, I just I, I feel an urge to, to, to make this comment. There's no question. Well, most everybody agrees that 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 awkwardly designed, awkwardly placed fuel selector valve was a big factor in that crash. You know, it's funny. People always gloss over the fact that that wouldn't have been a problem at all if he hadn't been barreling along like at 150 knots, 200 feet off the deck when he did this. Um, you know, it also wouldn't have been a factor if he'd have taken the time to top the tanks off before yeah, he went you know, for another turnaround. May the guy also rest in peace. Been, I don't mean also any, wouldn't have been a go ahead, Jeb. A factor if he continued to fly the airplane. Yeah, yeah I said it also that, wouldn't it, have been exactly a, a right. problem if he'd continued to fly the airplane. I, so I, yeah, I, I mean, he he failed on three different things yeah. that he should have done, and any one of them would have fixed the problem. Yeah. So, yeah. anyways, it, it, and this and, and the interesting thing about this is this NTSB uh, study. Is is basically reaffirming something that's been known in the home building community for decades, right? And that right. is that experimental amateur built aircraft, particularly first flight ones, uh, have a higher degree of risk for the occupants than that factory built FAR twenty three airplane that just came out of the fact out of the shop. Uh, so the guy that builds his new airplane and hires a pilot very experienced in that airplane to make that first couple of flights, fly the first couple hours on it, and that guy's going to spend a lot of time climbing all over that airplane making sure oh, yeah. it's built appropriately Yeah. So. before he sets his butt in it and puts himself at risk. Well, you've already added an extra set of eyes, and you've right. had somebody qualified at the controls, and if it's two-seater, hell, then... You know, you get the hours off of it, then that guy can give you dual. Right. Yeah. yeah. And your odds of living a long and happy life and not becoming a subject of this kind of study increase exponentially. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. Right. Hey, we're kind of reaching the end of our allotted time here. Uh, unless Already? Yeah, it unless... seemed like we just got here. I know. Well, you know. Uh, Shoutouts, I guess. Yeah, let's do shoutouts. What the heck? There are no shoutouts on the list, but uh, I, know, I can see one that's uh, that's uh, David. Talk about. Tell us about this sun and fun thing. Oh, sure. Yeah, I threw that on there because it landed in my mailbox today, and it's like they're doing something new. Uh, sun and Fun Inc. and the Recreational Aviation Foundation and the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association are teaming up. To uh, to to uh, uh, present what they're calling "Fire Up Your Summer Fly-In Weekend at Sun and Fun," 
on June 8, 9, and 10. I count 8 because you can show up on Friday the 8th, get your campsite, and participate in the two days of activities they've got lined up. This is all new, kiddies. Uh, this is not uh, a repeat of anything. Uh, they're going to have the Pilot Shop Mall on the Sun and Fun campus open. They're going to have the museum open. Uh, there's going to be a barbecue dinner uh, in the campground corn roast area. For anybody that's been there, they'll know where that is. Uh, there's going to be a fireside chat at the fire hub that the RAF created at this past Sun and Fun. Uh, they got camping on site. Uh, there's going to be a couple of pancake breakfasts on Sunday, one for AOPA members, one for non-members as a way to kind of say, hey, guys, maybe you ought to join. Uh, it it sounds like fun. If I was uh, in a more flexible situation and, and, and had, the, uh, had the time to do it, uh, I'd like to show up for this because I'm kind of curious to see what kind of crowd they're going to attract. Yeah, no, I agree. The, the whole idea of making Sun and Fun a little more year-round thing is, is very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Very, very well, this, interesting, this, yeah. Yeah, and this is kind of uh, one of the more tangible uh, results of the closer alignment that's occurring between AOPA and Sun and Fun, Inc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that the RAF is in on it, too, uh, I think it's just icing on the cake. So, uh, and, and the pond in the main campground, uh, I can think of nothing better than putting a tent up there, having an airplane parked nearby, uh and walking across the road to the corn roast area and having some fun with fellow aviators who uh, like to get out and about. Yeah. So if you've got time, there's something to put on your calendar. Yep, yep. Any other shout-outs, Jeb? No, I don't have any tonight. Yeah, it's a quiet week. Yeah, well, we could tackle these these uh, last two listening questions. What? No, we'll save them for another week. We got, okay. We're good. We're good. Uh, but people should send us their listener quote. We did finally get a couple of uh, genuine listener questions this week. And, uh, <laughs> it's kind of slow going. We're trying to build this, you know, kind of get people used to the idea of uh, sending these little, little short questions. And, uh, um, and and let me say, by the way, they don't necessarily need to be serious aviation questions. All right. You know, for example, you know, we can continue to try and, you know, get Jeb to talk about the project that shall not be named. Uh, we could, uh, there's all kinds of things that you could ask us. So, uh, I hope you are editing all this stuff out. <laughs> all right. I, tr- I trust you are time to stick a fork in this one. Do I, do I need to, do I need to go listen to these? <laughs> I don't know why you're going to start now. Uh, Dave Higdon is a uh, aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U S editor for London's world aircraft sales magazine. David, what you've been working on? Anything fun? Uh, yeah, actually, I, uh, I just don't remember what it is right now. <laughs> well, I, I, I should really be asked this question at the beginning. <laughs> I know. I think I'm going to have to come up with a different system. Well, lacking that, David, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, uh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Uh, if you're an NBAA member, uh, you can find me in Business Aviation Insider every couple of months, which is how often they publish it. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, dare I ask? what have you been working on jeb (laughs) 
Jeb. <laughs> oh God. Uh, well, my, the first the first thing I was going to say is that uh, you know living longer by flying and all that is really good, except when you can't remember anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jeb. Uh, any particular but, uh, projects you've been working on? No, you want to tell us I, about? I've actually uh, uh, last couple of days uh, been focused on some other stuff and really haven't. Uh, um, tackle any work-related projects here. Um, gearing up, however, for the July issue of Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, you can find out more about that at uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Um, also, look around AEA.net. Uh, there's some articles coming out uh, that I've written there. Um, and then finally, of course, uh, uh, jeburnside.com. And, uh, of course, every now and then on avwell.com. Yeah. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Um, I, you know, I've actually not been working on a lot of uh, aviation projects myself. Uh, we're, we're, I'm gearing up here to head off on uh, Monday, on Memorial Day. Memorial Day, I, uh, I get on an airplane and go to Las Vegas for my annual summer trip to uh, to Las Vegas for the big uh, big tech event that I work on there. So, uh, well, next the next couple episodes will probably be from at least my part of it will be from Las Vegas. And uh, that's kind of a big thing, trying to get all my ducks in a row here so I can go away for two weeks. Um, I am What's trying. What sound like when you get the ducks in a row? Yeah. What, do, do they sing in, in harmony? Um, and, and what's the lake temperature? Oh, the lake temperature is doing great, by the way. The lake temperature gets between 70 and 73 degrees every day these days. Wow. It's, it's wow. very, very nice. It's very, very nice. Um, anyways, in addition to my planning to go to uh, Las Vegas, I am working at, I'm at hard at work trying to get volume two of Around the Field ready. Uh, you'll eventually be able to get that at uh, Amazon eBookstore, the Kindle bookstore, uh, along with Around the Field volume one. And in general, you can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes and for his big help on the forums. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Roy Searle, Jim Goldman, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For, inf for information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? Short-term memory loss notwithstanding, the best way to live a long and happy life to fly because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye, and happy Memorial Day. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Bye. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.